Hi there, my name is Adam Waters, and I'm the lead pastor here at Grace Bible Church in Elmhurst, Illinois. I'm just so glad that you made the decision to take us along with you this week on life's journey. Here at Grace Bible Church, we are a family of faith who seeks forgiveness, healing, and hope in Jesus Christ. Now, we might all come from different backgrounds, but each of us recognize that the tremendous needs in our lives point us to one place, to God, for His answers, His provision, and mostly, for His grace. I hope the following program gives you a new perspective on who God is, who you are, and how you too might find forgiveness, healing, and hope in our Lord Jesus. Thanks for listening. know a man, he's about 35 years old. I'm working with him right now to actually learn biblical Hebrew. He is in seminary and he was a few weeks behind and so he wanted to see what he could do in order to work uh, through some of the, the previous stuff and, and sort of catch up. And so I've, I've been really blessed to have this opportunity to take what the Lord has given me and blessed me with and to help this man proceed uh, in learning this really awesome, beautiful, but undoubtedly difficult language. Well, through the course of our meetings together, it has become, like it often does, a lot more than just about the language. It's become more about life. It's become more about his calling. It's become more about uh, what is going on sort of behind his scenes. I only see a picture in a, in a Zoom call. Uh, but he's a whole person in those very aspects of his life. So we started to, to talk about that. I don't know how I find myself in these situations. We start talking about Hebrew and now we're talking about life. I think that the Lord just that makes that happen. Anyway, he's telling me a little bit about his calling. Uh, married man, uh, loves his wife very much. Uh, neither of them were believers not that long ago, several years ago, five years ago maybe. And he suddenly is saved by God. He now has this growing uh, relationship with the Lord Jesus and his friends, his family, his wife do not understand. In fact, they are in opposition to a lot of what he is seeking to do, not in necessarily his own desire to fulfill himself and to do what he wants, but to do what the Lord is asking him to do. He owns businesses, and he's finding that while he's in seminary, there is infighting and problems among employees and managers as they seek to distract him from doing what God has called him to do. The relationship with his family, particularly his wife, is on a really rocky road. Really rocky road. And he's not sure how it's going to end. He has, this is the really, uh, I mean, that's bad enough. It's suddenly he's getting these weird sicknesses where he's getting violently ill with nausea for just a short period of time. Then he goes to class, he comes back, he's fine. And that every time he's getting ready to do something in advancing his call in seminary, he is feeling opposition. We talked about this. I said, do you think it's a surprise or a, are, you, are, you, are you surprised that this is happening? He said, what do you mean? I said, you are walking into your destiny, your God-given role, and God has plans for you to do amazing things. Do you think the spiritual forces of darkness want that to happen? I, said, I never really maybe didn't think of it quite like that. I said, I want you to know something, that when you're in God's will, you can expect opposition. That when you're stepping out and doing what God has called you to do for the kingdom of Jesus Christ, you will face opposition. He says, what do I do? 
I said, well, it's great because I'm working on a sermon about that right now. We can talk a little bit about that. And so he was my guinea pig for this week. He heard a lot of what you're going to hear this morning. You know, how do we deal with this? I think this resonates with you as you guys recognize when you're stepping in and doing something for the kingdom that there are, as Michael was saying, forces outside of you, without you, and within you that work together to seek to pull you off of the path, the path that God has ordained for you. I mean, do you fight? Think of somebody. Think of someone in your life who, when you've stepped out and wanted to do something for the kingdom, gave you pushback? Do you fight against it harder? Do you tuck tail and run? Do you suddenly get quiet and don't say anything lest it raise greater problems? Maybe you do nothing. Maybe you do whatever you can in this panic sort of feeling to stave off opposition itself, never wanting to do anything that's going to create any waves. Peacekeeping, we say. Well, know this. It is impossible to live the life God is calling you to apart from persecution, apart from opposition by those who would seek to derail you from the life God has called you to, whether they be people, spiritual forces, systems in this world, or your very own sin. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. When we are living for the Lord, we will get pushback. So we need to know how to deal with it because it's not going away. It's something, in fact, that may grow as we grow deeper in our walk with the Lord. We deal with this opposition through faithful and Christ-centered prayer and perseverance. There's a an aspect of this that we're trusting in the Lord and his power and we're doing our part in this partnership between the God who's called us and ourselves. So today we're in Nehemiah 4, verses 1 through 14. If you're going through with me, you'll notice that we skipped an entire chapter of Nehemiah. Always gives me pause. Do I really want to skip a whole chapter of God's word when we're going through? Now, when you read 3, you're going to see it's simply a list of names and families and where they were stationed in the rebuilding of the walls. There's always a lesson there. Something like, your work for the Lord we could have eternal consequences. We'll have eternal consequences. Here we are, thousands of years later, talking about the people who were building at the wall and where they were building. In a similar way, Nehemiah points out who didn't help. So think about that. That in some way, there is a reminder of what we didn't do that we could have for the kingdom of God. But I want us to focus more on four. I want us to look ahead to see how we deal with opposition. And so turn with me, chapter four, verse one. We're gonna read one through three first. Now, when Sanballat, you remember him, Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged. And he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in one day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish, burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him. And he said, yes, what are they building? If a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. 
As we're going to see in just a moment, the first thing that Nehemiah does, and this is our first point in response to this opposition, is we meet provocation with prayer. Sanballat was not happy. He was seeking to incite his family to violence. He was even seeking a military intervention. The enemies of God are ridiculing the Jews in an attempt at rebuilding their ruins. Look at the things they focus on, and you can probably relate to this. First, they focus on their strength, the feeble Jews, striking at the identity of who they are. They're not powerful. Who do they think they are? We hear these words when we seek to stand out and stand firm for something for the Lord. Who do we think we are? Who do you think you are? Looks at the duration. How long is it going to take them? What, do they think they're going to get it done in one day? The quality. Burn stones at that. This is really interesting. When you have a stone structure, we often think about castles in England, and they were burned out, and now there's just ruins left. Why, why do those stones burn? How do those stones burn? Well, stone contains water content. And when it undergoes intense heat, that water be, turns to steam, and it actually creates microfractures within the stone. So a castle or a wall in this scenario that had been exposed to intense flames, intense fire, cannot be reused again for rebuilding uh, or used again for rebuilding because of the structural problems within the stone itself. Yet this is what God is calling them to use to rebuild this wall. Now, the opposition knows they're using the same stones that they were using before. It won't work this time. It may have been okay then. It's not going to be okay now, yet they use them anyway. And he questions their motives. Do they want to start sacrificing again? Do they want to take control of their city again? Do they want to make a name for themselves? Remember we talked about they thought that there was a rebellion that they were going to incite against the king of Persia again. You know, people will do this in an attempt to prevent us from taking away what currently is a benefit to them. When you set a boundary and you are doing the Lord's will and you are stepping out and either interacting with somebody in a way that is godly or seeking to do a project within yourself or outside of you for the Lord, you can know you're going to need to set boundaries. Often the ones who push back the hardest are the ones who will lose something by your obedience to God. This is a reality that you must understand when you're interacting with those who are pushing back on your boundary setting, who are pushing back on your desire to honor God with your life and to live differently. I don't know how many times when I first got into recovery, people would call me and say, hey, you want to go out? You want to go do this? No, I'm good. Well, why not? Well, I don't drink anymore. I don't use drugs anymore. I don't do this anymore. And it always turned around on them oh, you think you're better now. Oh, what you're saying must mean something about me. You're wanting to live a better life, but this is really all about me. This is common. And the sneaky thing about it is we will do it in our own lives towards those around us. It's subtle. Our sin is subtle. How many times have we heard bad news about someone in our workplace or in our family? Be honest. And the first thing we think is, how does this affect me? Oh, I have to look at my schedule. Oh, I have to look at my workload. Oh, I have to look. 
People can like the situation as it stands and, and resist efforts at changing it because they like the status quo. I see this so often in families who are struggling, either relationally or there's an addict in the family or there's some breakdown of familial communication. You see, a family, a church even, is a system where what affects one person within the system affects the rest of the system. It's as if we're a series of cogs or we're all turning to the, in the power of the Spirit in a certain direction, and when one changes direction, every other cog does as well. So I often hear, when people are seeking to live differently, when people are seeking to stand out and live in a way that honors God or is it a healthier way than they currently are, I hear people within the family say, I like them better when they drank. I liked them better when they used. Before, at least when I gave them a hard time, they would just quietly get drunk or they would quietly take it or they would put on a mask and try to make me happy. But now that we're seeking to live differently, live godly, live healthy, it's impacting me. And I don't know how to deal with it. This is what's happening in Nehemiah. He's seeking to step out, do something for the Lord, to change something, to step into his destiny. His calling, that God has called him to. He meets opposition. What does he do? He prays. Provocation with prayer. Verse 4. He says, Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. He's saying, basically, let what's happening to us happen to them. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. Nehemiah, again, just like we've seen in the first three chapters, answers his situation with prayer. Nehemiah is excellent at this. He's so good at taking his eyes off of what is happening around him and turning his eyes to God. He's one of the great redirectors of the Bible. As we read David, we see this again and again. Lord, look upon my plight. Look what my enemies seek to do. David turns to prayer. Jesus, in the opposition that he felt in this world, always looked to the Father and asked, what is the will of the Father? For that is why I came. When we're facing opposition for doing what is right, our response might be to defend ourselves. Our response is often to give explanation and try to hope to convince the people around us. But the very first thing we are called to do is recognize God is the one calling us. God is the one with the power. So we should turn our eyes from our situation and what is happening, our worries, our struggles, and look to him. Lord, behold what is happening. See me. See this. Nehemiah entreats God to see his situation. Now God knows everything, of course, But when we explain the situation we are in, it tends to reveal something in us 
about our motives, about what's really going on. There's something about the way God created us that when we say something out of our mouth and it goes back into our ear, it like hits different. There's like another part of the brain that gets addressed. Have you ever been praying or talking to someone about a situation and something comes out, you're like, I don't know where that came from. Like there was this moment of just openness and transparency, this moment where reality as it stands has come out. Behold God, look what is happening. Nehemiah says, we are despised. Now when we come to a prayer like this in the scripture, we see this frequently in the Psalms, we see it here in Nehemiah. It's a pretty hardcore prayer. When you consider what Nehemiah is asking God to do with these people, it's severe. This is called an imprecatory prayer. An imprecation is a, is a casting of a curse or condemning someone else. It's a prayer that seeks the summary judgment of one's enemies. Now, there was a time Nehemiah, the book uh, Psalms, we see it in David and in, the, in the, the prophets. There was a time when prayers like this were appropriate. I believe the difference has something to do with what God was doing in the world at the time the Old Testament was being written, namely the preservation of the Messianic line. When you see the Old Testament in the wars, in the killing, in the slaughter, in the... the, the, the the horrors, sometimes that God asked his people to commit. It stops and gives us pause and say, why? Why would God do this? How could God look upon this prayer of Nehemiah with approval? The answer, like so many things in the scripture, is Jesus. Jesus, the Savior of the world, was coming through one nation, one bloodline, to save all of humanity. For everyone who would place their faith throughout the ages in God's salvation, Jesus would be saved. And Satan's project has been and always will be to prevent that from happening. So the stakes are high. And so when you read imprecation like this, when you read those disasters and horrors, recognize that God is doing what he has to do to protect the messianic line. Why? So we could be here right now. So that we would have a savior. One who is man just like us and one who is God without sin and could settle once and for all the sin debt so that we might live forever with him. High stakes, big deal. Not just one battle we read, not just one prayer we read. It has eternal consequences. But now that the Messiah has come, he's redirected us to something different, something better. God in his revelation over time has revealed to us through Christ that we were helpless in our sin, that we all require grace, and that we should look to God for mercy for ourselves and for everyone around us. God has revealed to us what is really going on. We only see it partially here. 
when we get to heaven and we look back and we see the horror of sin, when we see the horror of our sin, you know, we, we argue about who has the nicer house, nicer front yard, who's prettier, who's got better clothes, who's got a better job, nicer kids, this and that. One day we're going to look back and we're going to realize how hideous we all are in the process of saying who's less hideous in comparison to the perfect, beautiful, holy God. Our squabbling is ridiculous. On the grand scheme of God's holiness, beauty, and perfection, it's meaningless. And so our prayer should be for our enemies, just as Jesus said, pray for them. Luke 6.27, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. Because as bad as they're treating us, as, bad, as, as evilly as they are seeking to hurt us, we know something they don't. Hell. We know something they don't. Jesus. In the beauty of the Messiah, the grace that he's lavished upon us while we were yet sinners. When we were enemies of God. Have you ever considered that when people mistreat us and they're in opposition to us doing the Lord's will, we are doing nothing, they are doing to us nothing different than we did to Jesus. In the moment that that happened, that when we were marshalling all of our forces against him while we were enemies in rebellion, hating God, Jesus opened our eyes by his divine grace and his sovereignty to see the reality of what is happening apart from anything we've done. And yet we want to hold the people who sin against us at a different standard. Therefore, our prayers of imprecation must be directed to someone else. It's not that we don't pray like this. We pray with a different object in mind. We pray to what is happening behind the scenes spiritually and not towards the players, the humans here before us, those who were made in the image of God for whom Jesus died. Ephesians 6.12 says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. These are spiritual beings. This is who this fight is against. This is what's happening behind the scenes. Yes, humans, they fall right in. And they're responsible for their actions. But know that there's something else going on. It's deeper than just their behavior or their words towards us. We tend to struggle with this, do we not? We lash out, we fight. Someone attacks us, we attack them. Sometimes we attack them before they attack us. We make the situation entirely about people and assume that they're just simply evil. But it's far more complicated than that. We can't always know. God has to sort it out. Nehemiah in this prayer calls upon God to defend his name among the people. First towards the enemies of Israel. He says, Lord, they've made you angry. And then he says, in the presence of the builders, your people. In other words, he's saying, Lord, defend your name. Defend your name. So in the face of this opposition, 
in the face of the anger, the rage that is coming from those who would seek to prevent Nehemiah from doing what God has called him to do. Verse 6, so we built the wall. (laughs) So we built the wall. And all the wall was joined together to half its height for the people had a mind to work. Second point from this morning, stand firm in the face of opposition. Don't stop. Doesn't mean we railroad things. Doesn't doesn't mean we don't listen to the objections of people and take them out of their face and evaluate them against what God is calling us to do. But don't stop. It's easy to take our foot off the gas when people are threatening us and to say, well, I'm going to back off a little bit. Don't get distracted. God has called you to do a work that means God is the one underwriting your steps. We get distracted by the drama or we worry and get paralyzed about what's going to happen. God has got you. On God's, and when you're in God's will, there's nothing that can happen. Nothing. We worry about death too much. We worry about dying. We're all dying. The timing and means are almost secondary. The truth is, is we're all going to go home one day. Yet we allow the fear of something inevitable to impact the way we love and live for the Lord now. I realize the seriousness of that. I realize how scary it can be. How we can worry about what's going to happen. But God is a good God who's in charge, who's all-powerful. Sometimes we succumb to the taunts and we give up. When I was in prison, there was a man, a young kid, 18, 19 years old. He might have actually been younger than that. Been gangbanging his whole life. But there was something different in him. I don't know what it was. He'd walk around with a dictionary. He wanted to be a rapper. And to be a rapper, you need to have words. You need to have lots of words in your head. And that's all he did. It's all he did was study words and words. Super intelligent guy. And so we started talking. I really liked him. I really do like him. Wherever he is. If you're watching, I like you. You should come see me. (laughs) I can't remember his name. That's the problem. We got to talking and we get closer and closer talking about words and just like anything, it turned into life. We started talking about his background, his upbringing, his family. We started talking about all sorts of things, his participation in gangs. How did that start? How are you feeling? What do you think about that? And he confided quite a bit to me. Um, He was in a gang that mostly affiliated or associated itself with Islam. And so there was that aspect of it as well that we would talk about. And there was some moments, in fact, one moment, where he was just right there. God was working so powerfully in his heart. I could see it right before. I knew God was, it's like I was watching something happen. And he said, oh, I, 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 I can't, we need to take a break or something. So he, I said, all right, yeah, man, go do your thing. So he walked, he left the room. Immediately, I heard heckling. Oh, he thinks he's smart now. 
oh, you think that you're better than us because you go hang out with Doc now. That's what everyone called me. You're hanging out with Doc and learning big words, talking big things. Oh, you're going to get educated. That's what's happening here. Within a few hours, he was gone. Fell right back in. Had to prove his loyalty to the guys who were giving him a hard time. Got into a fight, got shipped off to another prison. I have no idea where he is today. In the book of Revelation, it talks about the, the child being born. It's all, it's all metaphorical language, but about a child being born and the dragon waiting to devour it as soon as it comes out. Talking about the Messiah and Israel. Oh man, do we see this every day. As soon as someone turns towards God in his will, seeking to do that which is right and holy and righteous, there's Satan ready to get him. But we can't quit. We meet provocation with prayer and we stand firm. The scary thing is, is that sometimes even believers go on to perpetuate the very opposition in the people around us. We seek to do the Lord's will. We face opposition. We succumb to that fear. We shirk back from what God, shrink back from what God has called us to do. And then when someone else in our life steps out to do what they're called to do, we become one of the opposers. You shouldn't do that. They're going to get you. They're going to projecting our own fears onto the people around us. Let it not be. Let us be so in tune with what we really are, who we really are, in what is really happening in the world around us, in the spiritual realm, that we have no doubt that we are encouraging and pointing people to Christ, not standing in their way. Let's read some more. Verse 7. But when Sambalot and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites, here's a whole other group of people who are getting, they're getting bigger, heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah, it was said, this is where they're working, this is Jerusalem. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us, 10 times, you got to stop, you got to return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. Nehemiah's problems are going from bad to worse. That's what God loves to do. God loves to make a situation bad, bad before he acts. Why? Because then it's only God who can do it. Verse 2, Zambalot was inciting anger among the armies of Syria. Now we had the Ashdodites in verse 7. We're growing in number. They're growing in anger. Nehemiah's opposition goes from angry. Verse 1, they were kaos is the word, irritated, vexed. To a new phrase. Chara me'od. It means nose 
becomes hot. The wrath was kindled. It comes from the word glow. In other words, they were burning with anger. Seek to do the Lord's will, face opposition, stand firm. Guess what we get? More opposition. The tension's building here. God's allowing this to happen because why? He is able. He's our Savior. He's the one who can get us through it. Don't expect people to give up easily. Truth is, is the reason for their opposition can run deeper than even they understand. And they'll often enlist others to help intimidate you or talk some sense into you. Matthew 16, 22. And Peter took him aside. Peter, speaking to Jesus, after talking about, I'm going to go to the cross and die, takes him aside and began to rebuke him. Can you Peter rebuking Jesus saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. One of the basic strategies of Satan is to cause confusion. That's what it says here in the text, seeking to sow confusion among the people who are rebuilding. And it can be quite convincing. Can he not? Among the Jews, the people working were getting weak. It's too hard. We can't finish. Among the enemies, fomenting discord and inciting violence. And even fellow believers, those not part of the work, but those just watching it all happen, coming to them, you should stop. It'd be better if you stop. Don't stop. Nehemiah's response, he focuses on the efforts of the, he focuses his efforts on the vulnerabilities where the wall is low, places people around them and in clans so they can hold each other accountable and fight for each other. It's a beautiful picture here. We fight for each other. This is our clan. It's the Jesus clan. This is the GBC Jesus clan. We fight. He surrounded people with their own allies. And he arms them for battle. What are our weapons of war? Prayer, the word of God, community. We should avail ourselves of it way more than we do. Way more. Verse 14. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. I wonder if Nehemiah looked like Braveheart. Feels like Braveheart. I see half a blue face here as he's saying it. Third point, keep your eyes on Christ. Amid the confusion, the turmoil, the fear, the opposition, keep your eyes on Christ. Focus on the character of Christ. You serve an awesome and great God. Christ has overcome death and hell. Christ has already won the battle in which we are simply engaged in the cleanup operations. We recall what he's done in the past, not only in the past history, but in your past. Listen to what it says in Psalm 66. Shout for joy to God all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. 
Give to him glorious praise. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies are cringing to you. Come cringing to you. All the earth worships you and sings praises to you. They sing praises to your name. Salat means stop and think about that. Compare and see. Come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds towards the children of man. He talks about the, the Exodus. He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river on foot. They did re, there did we rejoice in him who rules by his might forever, whose eyes keep watch on the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. Think about that. The God who brought the Jews through the Red Sea is your God. The God who has levied himself, marshaled all of his heavenly forces to defeat Satan at the cross is your God. The situations that you are in, your life circumstances, they're not Pharaoh. Yet God called people to walk through on dry land a miracle in God's creation, creating something out of nothing to save his people when there was no one else. Nothing can stand in the will of God. That means when you're walking in the will of God, nothing can stop you but you. It will come to pass. We remember not only God's character, but we remember what Christ endured himself while he was here. 1 Peter 2.21, for to, for to this you have been called, namely suffering, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. I think I'm going to get saved, start going to church, and have a great life. Perhaps the biggest lie when you're following the Lord in the way he's expecting you to follow, when we're following Christ and truly are seeking to live out his example, our houses get smaller, our bank accounts get smaller, our friend groups get smaller. Sometimes the length of our life gets shorter. We can expect to suffer if we're following Christ. We spend a lot of our time trying to short-circuit that and have it both ways. Follow Christ well in everything he's asked me to do. Embrace the life. Accept suffer. Hebrews 12.3 Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Remember what Christ has done for you in your salvation. While you were still enemies of God, Christ came. In your own lives, you all have testimony after testimony after testimony of times that God came in and acted when it seemed like nothing else. God was there. We all have them. Do you see them? We look at the lives of others, how God has intervened how Christ has come in and changed a situation or changed a person so they could deal with the situation with joy and poise and godliness. We recall that Christ has already overcome the world, our sin and the enemy. John 16, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In Christ 
you may have peace. In the world, you'll have tribulation. But take heart, I've overcome the world. And because Christ has overcome the world, so have we. Consider that. You are more than an overcomer. It's not just hyperbole. When you read it in the Bible and in the Corinthians, it says, we are more than overcomers. It's not like, oh, I hope to be that one day. You are. You are. First John 5. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Everyone who has been born of God has overcome. Done. Who is it? that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God, the one who has already conquered, the one who has already won. No opposition, no fighting, no words, no shame, no violence can prevent that. That is why we can stand firm. That is why we can continue forward in the face of tremendous odds because we have overcome. Nothing, though, of what we've discussed can be done apart from faith in Christ. You have to believe that he's done that. When you're facing life's trials and tribulations, when you're facing painful and difficult situations and circumstances, walking through those can feel so difficult, right? We're looking at our situation. We're looking at the stuff going on. We're looking at the storm. The reality is, is that we are in the eye that Christ is our peace and that though it seems like things are going on around us that are going to hurt us, damage us, impact us, at our identity, we need to trust that Christ has overcome and so have we. So we meet provocation with prayer. We stand firm in the face of opposition. We don't relent. We don't give up. And we do it by keeping our eyes on Christ. as I tidied this up before I preached this morning, you know, it was easy to think about what's going on in Israel. Right? Such a messy situation. And it really does seem like there's no good answer. And it certainly doesn't seem like there's any resolution that's going to happen anytime soon. People are hardened in their position. They have good evidence on both sides convincing evidence on both sides that they're the right party in it all. And so it's not just going to stop. On top of that, as believers, every time something happens in Israel, what do we do? We start thinking end times. Not necessarily anything wrong with that. What ends up happening, though, is we see what's happening in that aspect of the, or that area of the world. We see the violence. We start looking at the scripture and we say, It's coming. On the one hand, we should be always doing that. Remembering that one day Christ will return and that we're going to stand before him and all of this is not going to matter anymore. We're going to give an account, we're going to stand on faith and we're going to be redeemed by the blood of Jesus if we believe. But it's so easy to see that and to be stirred and disturbed and worried. What does this mean? Am I safe? Is it going to be scary? We keep our eyes on Christ. We expect there to be opposition. 
and we meet provocation with prayer. This is an excellent time for us to be reminding ourselves again and again that Christ is in control. This is a time as we see the horrors and we see what's coming out. If you have to see, not see, don't see. Because there's some really not good stuff going on. We pray. We trust. We keep our eyes on Christ. And we stand firm in what God has called us to do until he comes back. And we'll know when he gets here. It'll be obvious. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we... uh, we are disturbed, Lord. We do fear. We, we see the situations in our life. We see the chaos that goes on in our circumstances. We definitely see the chaos that goes on in our hearts. We know you're calling us to something better in so many ways. All of us. None of us have arrived, Lord. And yet we often feel resistance and opposition from our very hearts in doing the things that you've called us to do because of our sin, our sin nature, Lord. Lord, you may be calling us to something different outside of us, something bigger outside of us, some road that you're asking us to walk, some ruins you're asking us to rebuild. And we're afraid. We're afraid of the implications. We're afraid of the suffering. We're afraid of the opposition that goes with it. But Lord, give us strength. Give us grace. Give us the grace to remember what you have done, who you are, and that you're in control. We pray, Lord, that we would live lives well for you. That one day we would stand before you, and of course we always talk about, Lord, your word, well done, good and faithful servant, but Lord, also that you would show us all the ways we've impacted the world around us, things we never even noticed. Until that day comes, Lord, give us trust in you, give us faith in you. We thank you for what you've done on our behalf. And Lord, as we stand here and we praise you, as we pray to you, Lord, give us a deeper, clearer understanding of who you are and who we are and what you've done to bridge the gap. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Pastor Adam here. Well, I want to thank you for tuning in to Grace Bible Church, and I would love to hear what you thought of today's program or of ways that we can be praying for you and with you. So check us out on social media at GBCL. Also, if you would like to support our ministry, you can give securely at our website at www.gbclm.org. Now remember, God loves you, and so do we.